to In The Rising Podcast. My name is Bettina Brown, and this is the platform I've chosen to talk about living a life that's in alignment with your hopes, your dreams, and your goals, and turning your back on that shame-blame game that does absolutely nothing for anyone at any time. And I have really had an awesome time with my interviews, and today I got to interview a person whose books I've read for over 20 years. And as I continued through the interview, I admired her even more. Her name is Philippa Gregory, and she is the author of books like The Other Boleyn Girl, which was produced into a movie and uh, had Natalie Portman and Scarlett Johansson. Really is just a phenomenal, phenomenal author and historian. And I'm so excited for you to hear her story. Welcome. So thank you so much for being on In the Rising podcast. I'm really honored as a fan to um, speak to you today, but also really excited to speak to you as an author and someone who shows up uh, with their writing. So thank you for being here. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be with you. So I, I've read about you. I've read your books as well. But one of my first questions that that I like to ask any author is, especially you, because my understanding is you were working on a PhD when you were writing that very first book. What what gave you that nudge to just go ahead and write and publish? It's such a different thing, writing from publishing. So what gave me the nudge to write was that I had, I, I was writing my PhD. And so for four years, I had been reading 18th century novels and thinking about the world that the 18th century created for themselves, which in a sense explained and justified the changes they were making in the real world. Mm -hmm. So the elite 18th century English people are really terrible people. They're enclosing, they're grinding the faces of the poor, they're about to invent the Industrial Revolution, which is going to cause starvation and death to thousands of people who were formerly their tenants. So how do you live with yourself? And one of the ways they live with themselves is they invent this fantasy world about Merry England. Uh, so you get what ultimately becomes Victorian medievalism. So you get this idea that England's really lovely, that it's completely unpolluted, that it's um, everybody's living in their villages and dancing around maypoles and everything's fine. And that's the 18th century novel view of the countryside at the very time that the class of the 18th century readers are destroying the countryside. Mm. So that's what the thesis was partly about. And so in order to understand that, I read literally, literally 200 18th century novels. And these are not little books. These are triple deckers and eight volume things. So it was a massive project. And what I didn't realize was by the time I'd finished that research, I had produced, in fact, an apprenticeship for myself in mm -hmm. how to write a novel. And it was, I mean, transformative without knowing it. So literally, I had read 200 novels at the very time that the novel form was being written. So when I wanted to write a novel, it it just I just naturally I just wanted to write I just couldn't stop myself writing about an 18th century elite woman who was enclosing the land who was damaging the lives of the poor and as I was writing it I just knew that it was going well because I'd just been reading so many 18th century novels myself so in a sense the PhD gave me both the research material and the craft 
in one mm-hmm. go. And I didn't do it for that, but that's how it worked. That's how it came about. And I read a quote from you that says, I try to read so much, I know it until it becomes almost like a memory. Yes. And that is sounds exactly like what you just described. Yeah, the great uh, Faye Weldon once said to me, she said, it's not that you uh, research these stories and remember them. It's that you read them so much that you actually embed them. They are your history now. And it's absolutely true. And one of the funny things, one of the funny consequences of that is that if you ask me about some of my characters, I feel, and historical characters as well, I feel as fond of them as if you were asking me about members of my family. That I, I, I get that familiar sort of, oh, yes, you know. So um, Mary Boleyn's daughter, Catherine Carey, entered my novel um, in one of my later books. And uh, I was writing that she comes into the court of Elizabeth I. And I just really felt like, oh, yeah, I know you. And I remember saying that I knew your mother really well. Yes. <laughs> imaginary <laughs> conversation with an imaginary person. Oh, wow. And and so share, you know, you just have a new, new book um, coming out, Dawnlands. Share how the characters are evolving and what what gave you the idea to to develop these characters well interestingly as you know as your podcast it's about rising that what i wanted to do was i wanted to write a family saga which doesn't start off with the family in a pinnacle of success as so many sagas do i wanted to, to talk about how practically every family in england today comes not from aristocracy or certainly not from royals most of us come out of uh very very hard poor backgrounds because that's where the majority of people live in the historical period so i wanted a story about a woman who has virtually nothing and then loses that and how she builds a life for herself and her family so the first novel is called tidelands and we're a very poor family on the sussex shore uh in the south of england and they get themselves one way or another to the bank of the thames and a small warehouse and book two is them starting to run a business with a little bit of growth on the bank of the Thames and they start to become a little bit international. And so they end up with outpost trading in Venice and a brother goes to New England and is in Connecticut at the time of the King Philip's War. And book three sees us with the brother coming home from New England uh, because he knows that the Stuart king on the the throne, James II, is going to face a rebellion because of his uh, religious reforms. He wants to turn the country back to Roman Catholic. And the uh, Venice widow that we had in book two has has risen through society by complete ambition and sexual exploitation to become a lady of the court at the Queen of Mary of Medina. So you've got this family itself divided either side of what becomes uh, a very, very major English civil war. Yeah. And the characters, you know, you can relate to that because when you have virtually nothing and there have been people, especially now in the past few years with what's going on, have sometimes lost that as well. And um, or or knowing people or feeling vulnerable to lose things makes you relate to people in that way. When you're writing your characters and developing them and getting to know them like friends and family, 
where do you come from with regards to your ideas? Like, do you pull from your own experiences? Do you pull from friends and family? Do you pull from the culture? Uh, It very much depends on the story. I mean, I think everybody who writes a book has to acknowledge that they authored it. Of course, it comes out of my imagination and my memories and my experiences, but it also comes out of my research and Mm -hmm. my knowledge. So you've got this kind of coalescence of information which comes from different sources. I never consciously draw on anyone that I know and go like, oh, I'll have you because you would suit me. You know, that's not how I create. So it that doesn't work at all. But for instance, in this novel, Dawnlands, there's a, a character who is from the Poconocot people, who are the Aboriginal people on the east coast of America, uh, stretching really a lot of Massachusetts. I mean, that's a big empire that they have and run. And um, I met with them and the tribal elders to ask them if I might speak of their history. So first of all, it was very much a sort of a permission to research question. And then they were so generous with their time and so generous with their stories that I very much drew on that. So that is drawing on an oral history from real people now. Um, But then most of the work comes from um, literally records and sometimes uh, locations and geography and weather and uh, library records. I mean, I just read a tremendous amount. Now, it sounds like you're a voracious reader. (laughs) Like, have you, is that in your family or is that something you just developed um, over time? Um, My family are readers, but they're not scholars. Um, And that's just something that happened to me. Mm -hmm. And I was the first uh, first person in my family to go to university. on one side and the first woman to go to university on another side. Um, So it's, you know, it's something I'm very proud of in terms of my family history, but it's also just a passion. If if everybody hated it, I'd have done it anyway. You know, I think if if you're a reader, you just got to read. You have to, it's part of that. What do you feel, you know, when you're, you're, you know, you're well-loved your, your books have been um, followed, published multiple languages, there are famous actors that are now being the characters that you have developed and that came out of your research. How do you feel or what do you still feel like you have to rise up to? Is that like a side thing or are you just so focused on the love of your craft, the passion of your craft that you just focus on that? I have I have things I want to do yet that I that I would really dearly love to see. I I have a play which I really want to see. Mm. Um the theatre, which would be completely wonderful and thrilling to see put on. Um, And I'm in the middle of writing a non-fiction, a history of English women. And I am longing to see that published and to see the sort of reception it gets uh, in the world. And it should come out next year. Wow. Wonderful. Wonderful. And I definitely get the theme of the importance of acknowledging women in history and women in general. What a, it sounds like that is also a passion point for you to speak about. What do you feel we as women, and when we have an audience, whether it's podcasting or books, that we have an audience there, what do you feel is important to put out into the world regarding the importance of the contributions of women? Uh, 
Probably I'd say two things. One is that basically all of the history that you have most likely read is just half the history mm-hmm. of the nation. So, I mean, I'm sitting behind me is my collection of books of women's history, just about women. Over that side of the room, twice the size, easily twice mm-hmm. the size, actually four times the size is my collection of history books. And that's not proportionate at all. There are for every book written about women history, there are probably a hundred books written about history, which calls itself the national history, but is actually the history of the men of the nation. So I think we have to really understand that uh, women's history is still a vacuum, uh, and that it we're all we can all contribute to it. You know, even if you write your own history, even if you write your mother's history, that builds into a history of the nation, which is currently missing. Mm-hmm. And I suppose the other thing I really, really like to say is that one of the things that makes a difference between women of the very distant past, the medieval period, and women of today is that there was a class division which occurs around about the Industrial Revolution, and that's about breaking sisterhood. So in the, the medieval lady in the manor felt more akin to the villager in her cottage than, say, the woman running the company does to the woman on the shop floor. And that's a terrible, terrible thing that happened to us, literally happened to us, was literally done to us when people started to talk about ladies being special and women being ordinary. And the fact that we bought into that is completely understandable, but it's disastrous. It's disastrous. And what we have to do is to restore sisterhood. And I think we'll do that by understanding our history. Yeah. And I like the way you talked about restoring sisterhood and understanding your history and paying attention to that. So it's it's the history of your family, but also your maternal lines, knowing what each one of them have gone through and uh, not even knowing my own grandmothers because they had passed before I was born, but to hear the stories of what they've gone through um, either in the United States or in Germany during certain times, it does give you a sense of pride of what you can overcome and what you've been through, that this is your family line and they had it more difficult in some aspects. So get it together today <laughs> and put it out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what you, one of the lessons I think that that I come away from studying particularly historic women historic women characters from the past is that what characterizes the people who survive and indeed those who win is just absolute perseverance that mm-hmm. you don't ever give up just you um, and a lot of them don't have a choice because if they gave up they would be destroyed but mm-hmm. uh, even in the world today you know i think you have to maintain your energy and your commitment to your own happiness and to the happiness of your society you have to yeah well, gosh, this has been such an honor to speak with you. I, I love the the insight that you have and also your passion for bringing out as a woman um, and also to identify the people that did not have as much of a voice that you are now lending a voice to and interest to. So um, I'm so grateful. Share a, a little bit about your book where we can find them. I know we're on different sides of the pond of the Atlantic, um, but share, share a little bit about that. Yeah, um, my book is called 
Dawnlands. It's the story, as I was saying, of uh, Queen Mary of Modena and the family that serve her, and also the story of her husband and the the family, the same family that oppose him. So it's a story set in 1685, and we're leading up to 1688, which is in England is known as the Glorious Rebellion Revolution, and uh, you can get it in any bookshop anywhere. I hope if you can't get it in any bookshop. Let me know because you should be able to. And you can get it, uh, of course, online, uh, independent bookshops online as an ebook, as a Kindle book, uh, as an Audible book also. It should be everywhere. So I had really a phenomenal 15 minutes with Philippa Gregory and it went by so quickly. But I enjoyed the wisdom that she brought. I really enjoyed the fact that she was humble and shared her moniker of never giving up. But more importantly, I also realized that our stories, all of our stories, are so important. We are all here because someone obviously came in front of us, and we know our family tree to some extent, but there's so much we don't know. But every single one of those individuals had to go over something, had to rise, had to survive something great and something big. And maybe on those harsh days where we think we're having a bad day, or a character building day, we can think back on that and realize that we are just one of a long line of people that have risen every day. And it's also our responsibility, not only to our future generations, but also to ourselves and those around us to thrive and rise. And so I'm so grateful for your time today because it's that one resource we never get back. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it. The more hands and ears that we put it in, the greater the difference. And it's also my ask that if you enjoyed this podcast to leave a review, it does so much to further the span of this podcast. I thank you again for your time. And until next time, let's keep building one another up.